Let's see, what am I going to preach on this morning? Uh, lead me, Lord. Today I'm reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 22. Now Mary stood out the, outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or rabbi. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. History's biggest surprise was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus' most ardent followers were shocked by it, stunned by it, despite the fact that Jesus had told them repeatedly, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And in their minds, they're going, no, you're not. In this text, John shows us how unprepared for the resurrection Christ's followers were. First, we see Mary at the empty tomb weeping. It still hadn't dawned on her what had happened. She talked with angels, and then she talks to Jesus himself. But only when he speaks her name in that old familiar way, she must have heard him say it a thousand times. Only then does she realize it is Jesus and he is alive. Later that night, the disciples gathered in a room in the city where the door is locked. Confused, in pain, scared to death, asking themselves, what do all these rumors mean about Jesus it has come back? And suddenly there he is, and he greets them, shalom. My peace be with you. They are filled with incredible joy and astonishment. Of course, who could blame them for their astonishment or their joy? The resurrection of Jesus was something utterly new in time and space and history. It was so new that people had to be convinced, and they still do. Yet I believe the resurrection is the only event that can explain what happened after it. What changed Peter from a man who was backed down by a servant girl into one who challenged the very people who crucified Jesus and he defied them face to face? What changed James, the brother of Jesus, who during James's lifetime not only did not follow his brother, one time he came with the family to get him and bring him home because he thought he was crazy. The same James who became a leader in the church, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and who gave his life for his half-brother. What changed Paul from an ardent uh, persecutor of the church into a man willing to live and die for it? 
How do you explain the success of the early church despite the persecution from the most powerful empire that had ever existed up to that time, an empire dedicated to snuffing out this new movement of Christians? How do you explain millions upon millions of Christians who claim not only to believe in Christ, but who regularly run into him throughout the day? Why would a group of people like Peter and James and John die for a lie, the lie they made up? The resurrection is why we have a New Testament. It is why we have a church. It's why millions of Christians have died in hope and who have given their lives for that hope. It's the cornerstone of our faith. By the way, people were no more ready for resurrection then than they are now. Modern liberal scholars have been trying to explain away the resurrection for 150 years. They say something did happen on Easter morning. It just wasn't a physical resurrection. He, Jesus rose in the hearts and the minds of his followers. He lives forever in their memories. Jesus was wonderful. Let's still keep him alive somehow. Modern liberals are stupid. And the reason they are is, first of all, they don't understand. Actually, if they understood new science, they understand that anything is possible. But secondly, they don't understand human nature. Because these people were not sitting around having a positive thinking seminar. They were scared to death, afraid that whoever killed Jesus was coming after them soon. The last thing they wanted to do was start a Jesus movement so they could get killed too. That's not how it works. No, something happened 2,000 years ago that shook the disciples to their core. Something happened that changed them completely. The followers of Jesus radically changed because they saw something they weren't expecting in a million years. They saw a tortured, executed man who had been buried and who they expected to be stinking by the time they got back to him on Sunday morning to finish preparing his body for the funeral. Gone. And then they discovered something else. They discovered that Jesus was looking for them, passing through walls, showing up out of thin air. They saw the same person they had walked with and talked with and eaten with and who had taught them for three years as their rabbi. They saw him come back to life after a bloody death and do things they had never seen before. They witnessed nothing less than the power of God reanimating dead human cells and turning those cells into cells that would never taste death again or pain again. They saw Jesus in his resurrection body, which is a body, but not like any human body we know that can do far more than our human bodies can. After resurrection, tombs could not keep Jesus in. Walls could not keep Jesus out. Jesus was a real human being, real enough to walk with two people on the Emmaus Road, real enough to be mistaken for a gardener by Mary, real enough to eat fish supper with Peter. But Jesus tells us that he came back to show us what a real resurrection body can do. Jesus was not a ghost. He said, I'm not a ghost. He is the first fruits of resurrection, a resurrection we too will experience one day. Christ's resurrection means Jesus challenged humankind's greatest enemies. Enemies people and philosophers and generals could never touch. The enemies of human evil and death. And he won. And when he won, just like with Mary that morning, he introduced hope into the midst of hopelessness, life into the midst of death, healing into the midst of suffering. 
What his resurrection meant was that everything Jesus did and said was validated. It validated his sacrifice. It meant that God accepted what Jesus did on a cross and now we can have assurance of salvation. That's what the resurrection means. It validated his message and that his mission was successful and that he was everything he said he was. It validated that. And the resurrection means that he won over death. In that tomb that morning, the power of death was murdered. The sting is gone. Death's days are numbered. The curse is now being reversed. Death is now dying because Jesus came out of that grave. And it means that a new world is on the way. A new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom of God is coming and nothing can stop it. Park Renshaw wrote an article. She, it's called, If It's True, It's a Different World. Does that scare you? <laughs> I love that. She wrote this. In raising Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, God showed us the world according to God. In Jesus Christ, the world is now a new world. It is a world where the meek do inherit the earth, even when they don't have a deed to it registered in the courthouse. It's a world where the poor in spirit have the only true riches and among the poor, the bread is blessed and broken, and everyone has enough. In the new world of the resurrection, those who mourn are more than comforted. They dance before the Lord with their dead, often while they are still grieving. It is a world where the peacemakers know themselves and everyone else as children of God, and the merciful know what mercy does. It turns our enemies into brothers and sisters and causes weapons to rust and corrode and be transformed into tools. It is a new world. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And for us, you know, immediately now, the resurrection means Jesus can show up anywhere, anytime. Erwin McManus wrote that about five years ago, the Los Angeles Times commissioned a story on why churches were growing. And so they'd brought in a writer from the District of Columbia named Barbara Bradley. They selected five churches in the Los Angeles area they thought they could do research on, and one of those was Erwin McManus's church. Barbara Bradley called him one afternoon and said she had only one more question in her interview process, and that question was simply this, is God really there in your church? McManus said, I told her she needed to come and see. I thought it would encourage her to experience one of our celebration services. She came to a Saturday night service, and after the experience, I went over to her and asked if she, what she had concluded. And she said, well, maybe God was here. As she walked off that night, I was devastated, he said. I had thought this is going to be absolutely wonderful. We're going to be the church in the article where maybe God was there. I could see the L.A. Times having a field day off of this story. He said a few days later, she called me back and admitted that she had not been entirely honest with me. She said she, she was hesitant to be honest that night. But she said, I have to tell you something. God was there. Here was an intellectual from the Christian Science Monitor who had come with no knowledge of a personal God with credentials that extend to a fellowship at Yale Law School and believing that the reason churches grew was savvy marketing and great locations. 
She was now grappling with the knowledge that somehow that night she had met God. She let her reveal to McManus that as she sat in the parking lot that evening after the service, gathering her tools to continue her investigative process, she said she began to shake uncontrollably. And as she watched her hands shake, somehow she knew the shaking was the, because the presence of God was in that car. It should come as no surprise that three weeks later, as she was bringing her research to an end, she knelt in McManus's office and committed her life to Jesus Christ. Now, years later, Barbara Bradley is a regular on the national public radio, which means probably none of you have ever heard of her, and a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. It is as though her encounter with Jesus Christ that she was able to see, by the way, the God story at Columbine High School. She was the one that broke the story of Cassie Bernal, the teenage Christian martyr who brought hope in the midst. Remember that one of the gunmen went up to her and said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am, and he shot her dead. Jesus' resurrection means there are new possibilities anywhere and everywhere. The way we look at the world has been permanently altered. The bottom line is no longer how much money do I make or how much am I progressing in my career or what kind of hell is that Jesus Christ lives and you and I will live too. It means that Jesus Christ is Lord and serving him ultimately is all that matters. The bottom line is that Christ has triumphed and now there is no situation that will ever be hopeless again. His presence changes everything. The same God that met Barbara Bradley in her darkness will meet us in ours now. It's important to note that the resurrection did not change the external world in which they lived initially, but it did change them dramatically and deeply. Mary was still, and the disciples were still under the rule of Rome, and Rome was still persecuting. Herod was still king, and he was a butcher. The Sanhedrin was still in power looking for them. In fact, circumstantially, things were not going to get better. They were going to get worse. Persecution, imprisonment, death were possible destinies for them all and eventually would be for them all. They didn't get saved and all their troubles went away. That is not what happened. No, the resurrection changed Christ's disciples so that they could love and have the love and the power and the courage to face whatever the devil threw at them, whatever Rome threw at them, whatever the Sanhedrin threw at them. The German philosopher Nietzsche, who ironically enough was an atheist and proponent of it, said that he who has a why to live for can put up with almost any how. Those initial Christians found their why. Today we are here because of Easter. The mess, and, and if the message of Easter is true, then Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead... He is alive now. And if he is alive now, he is here in the power of his spirit. And if he is here in the power of his spirit, this morning he is moving, guiding, saving, leading, healing, touching, revealing himself to hungry hearts. All too often, we Christians have turned Jesus into a concept or a theology instead of an encounter with a living person. All too often we teach people about Jesus instead of leading them into a, a living encounter with him. 
All too often we teach someone principles and formulas and how to think and behave, but not how to love and be loved by the source of all love. Again, the implications for this is that Jesus is here and he is not silent. Our faith is not an abstract concept, but a living person. Our cry should be Mary's this morning. I have seen the Lord. I have felt the Lord. I feel him in this place this morning. Sometimes we forget who we really are and who he really is. Years ago, President Bush went to visit a nursing home. And while he was visiting the nursing home, there was an old man over 90 years old coming down the hall. President Bush went up to him and shook his hand warmly. And he, he could tell the guy, you know, was a little out of it. And he said, do you know who I am? And the 90-year-old man said, no, but if I find a nurse, she can tell you. <laughs> obviously, he was coming from a totally different point of reference. He had obviously needed the nurses' services to tell him who he was every now and then. We can't forget this. But often we forget to keep looking for the risen Christ in our lives. And that is a problem. One writer says that psychologists who deal with the study of perception refer to a phenomenon called habituation. The idea is that when a new object or stimulus is introduced to our environment, we are intensely aware of it. But the awareness fades over time. For instance, when you buy a new wristwatch, you feel it on your wrist constantly. But after a while, you don't even notice that it's there, do you? When people move into a new home, they generally have a list of things they must repair or remodel because the sight of it is intolerable. Five years later, they still may have the same list, but the lack of repair doesn't bother them at all. This writer said years ago, we had a dog that used to eat our furniture. And he said, when I say eat, I don't mean chew on. He ate the top off the ottoman in front of our sofa so that the foam rubber was exposed. And then he ate the foam rubber. The pathetic part, he said, is that we got used to this half-eaten ottoman. After a while, we didn't even notice it anymore. He said, we habituated. One of the greatest challenges in life is fighting what might be called spiritual habituation. We simply drift into acceptance of life in a spiritual maintenance mode. We rationalize it because we think, I'm not involved in any major scandalous sin. I haven't done anything to jeopardize getting into heaven. I'm doing okay. But we forget that Jesus never said, I have come so that you might do okay. With Christians, okay is not okay. We have a kind of spiritual attention deficit disorder that God will have to break through. When life is on spiritual autopilot, rivers of living water do not flow through it with energy and joy. When you're on autopilot spiritually, it doesn't mean you do something terrible. It just means you let yell at the kids. You worry too much about money on your job. You get jealous of people more successful or, or attractive than you are. You use deception, at least some, to get out of trouble. You pass judgment on people, often when you're secretly jealous of them. 
Spiritual habituation in some ways is more dangerous than spiritual depravity because it is so subtle, so gradual, and so excusable. God's biggest complaint with Israel and even in the New Testament with the Laodicean church is he said, you keep ignoring me. You keep forgetting who you are and I am. You put it on autopilot. You've lost your first love. You no longer seek my face. Idols have filled in. Filled in. Mostly, this writer says, spiritual habituation involves a failure to see. We just quit looking for God and then wonder why he seems unreal and why our faith is as dry as dust. Jesus did not come back from the dead so we could live mediocre lives. He came to bring life and bring it more abundant. He came to walk with us and talk with us. He came so that we could know him firsthand right here, right now. He came to do nothing less than transform us. He didn't come so we could pretend to be religious and go through the motions. We are here today because Christ is here. Our main job as a church is to recognize the reality of Christ in our midst and respond to him. That is called worship. He is risen and he is here and he is moving among us. For God's sakes, don't miss that. No, the fact is, is that as Christians, we have stumbled onto what the world is hungry for and doesn't know it. The resurrection means there is no place where Christ's love can be stopped. No suffering where his strength cannot sustain us or heal us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Where his presence is affirmed, a whole new world is opened up in the middle of the old one. William Willimon, when he was a pastor, said, I was visiting a man as he lay dying, his death only a couple of days away. And he said, I asked him there at the end what he was feeling. Was he fearful? Fear? No, he responded. I am not fearful because of my faith in Jesus. We all have hope that our future is in God's hands, Williman said piously. He said, I'm not hopeful because of what I believe about the future. He said, I'm hopeful because of what I have experienced in the past. Williman said, say more. He said, I look back over my life. All the mistakes I've made, all the times I've turned away from Jesus, gone my own way, strayed and got lost. And time after time, he found a way to get to me, showed up and got me, looked for me when I wasn't looking for him. I don't think he'll let something like my dying defeat his love now. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Jesus is alive and present in the world, often in the most surprising places, in broken hearts like Mary's, or with cowards shivering behind closed doors, or in prisons, or in death, or in hospital rooms, or in darkness. You know what? Jesus even shows up in churches. Jesus is alive in this world. And if he is alive in this world, it is a new one for all of us. No one can cheat us of Christ's love. Nothing can separate him, his power from working in us. Nothing can cheat our inheritance because nothing can put Jesus back in the grave again. Amen. 
Christ has won. And if he has, then we have to hallelujah. His life, his love, his strength can sustain us through anything because Christ has risen. Mary heard her name called 2,000 years ago. Do you hear your name being called this morning? Jesus Christ is here. You know, as a pastor, I, I feel privileged because when I get to pray with people and visit people and counsel with people, when I get to spend time with people in their last hours, you know what I get to see? I get to see resurrection over and over and over. I get to see God resurrect marriages. I get to see God resurrect parts in us that has already died, and he brings it back to life. I get to see God resurrect futures that were going nowhere. I get to see God's power interact with human beings, his resurrection power, over and over and over again. You know, sometimes it's not fun being a pastor, but I have to admit to you, most of the time it is. It's fun watching Jesus be alive. It's fun watching resurrection power work. It's fun watching Jesus do what only Jesus can do. Do you hear him calling your voice today? He is. He knows you by name. Your name is written right here in his hands. I'd like the worship team to come forward. And I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who does not believe you're alive. And I pray, Lord, that they will enter into new life this morning. Because if they don't, they're missing. They're missing the ride of their life. And I pray, Lord, for Christians here this morning who's, who's, you haven't been real to them in a long time. I pray, Lord Jesus, living God, that they will hear you calling them, touching them, resurrecting whatever is dead in them and bringing them back into life with you. Lord, the greatest tragedy of all in this life or the next would be missing you ignoring you, trying to exist without you. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help every hungry heart here today to find you hunting them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. We will pray for you about anything and everything. But listen, if you don't, don't listen to me, listen to the Lord. 